Well, good morning, everybody. If we could take our Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 31 and verse 53. The title of our message this morning is Our Perfect Sacrifice. Our Perfect Sacrifice. We, as we're continuing on, moving verse by verse through the book of Genesis at a Stage in the book of Genesis where God is at work through this man Jacob. As God has worked through Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, he is starting a brand new nation. The nation of Israel. A very significant nation because through that special nation, God intends to bless the whole world. Jacob has been under the rod, I guess we could say, of his uncle Laban in Haran. That's the circle up top for about two decades, 20 years. He's been uh, cheated in every way you can imagine. But God's hand has been on Jacob. He has left Haran returning now to the land of Canaan with two wives and 11 sons and a daughter. He's actually become wealthy in the process, even though Laban was trying to hold him down, so to speak. He leaves Haran. He's in route back to the land of Canaan, and there Haran overtakes Jacob in the Transjordan Mountains The two converse, the two interact, and the two enter into an agreement with one another. Last week we started to study that agreement. We're going to try to finish it up this week, Lord willing. How hard can it be? There's only two and a half verses here. There was a covenant proposal, covenant witnesses, Laban's perspective, and now Jacob's response. Laban has sort of... um, hammered out an arrangement whereby he would not interfere with Jacob taking his daughters and grandchildren back to Canaan, and then Jacob is not to use the household idols that Jacob doesn't even know yet he possesses to establish some sort of financial claim on Laban's estate. There's sort of a border now between the two men, and this is why Laban and Haran and Mesopotamia at this point, that area up there in Haran, disappears from the biblical record. This is why even though Jacob went to Haran and received two wives, why Isaac, you remember, Abraham sent his servant to Haran to get a wife for Isaac. This is why, when you understand this, why the rest of the biblical story, the rest of the book of Genesis, you don't have a situation where the various descendants of Jacob, 
who are going to become the 12 tribes go back to Haran to get wives for themselves because now there is a border, if you will, between these two men. Uh, Laban says, you go your way, I'll go my way. We won't interfere with each other. And the two of them sort of hammer out a vertical agreement between one another. It's one of those um, events that I don't know if too many pastors would preach on this. I don't know if someone would ever develop a sermon series on this. But it's one of those things you have to understand to understand the book of Genesis. I mean, why is it that more wives are not obtained from up north Haran? This agreement between these two men explains that. So once this agreement is hammered out, you have Jacob's response. He responds in three ways. The first way is he he swears. In other words, he swears his loyalty, his fidelity to this arrangement. And you see that there in the second half of verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. This is a very interesting name for God, fear of his father, Isaac. It's only used here, verse 53. And it's used one more time in the same chapter in the whole Bible, verse 42. It's an interesting way to refer to God. You'll only find it in this chapter. Verse 42, you remember, said, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been upon me. He calls God the fear of Isaac. Isaac, in other words, feared God. Charles Ryrie of these verses says, The fear of Isaac means the God Isaac feared. And, of course, this becomes one of the many names of God described in the book of Genesis. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. One of the things that you see sort of falling off in our society and also falling away in modern-day Christianity is the actual fear of God. Fear of God is not the idea that we are, you know, trembling in front of God's presence constantly. It's not so much speaking of an emotion, but it's essentially talking about respect for God, respect for the ways of God, Uh, understanding as the book of Isaiah chapter 55, I believe it's verses 8 and 9, describes God that God's ways are higher than ours. And we come to the Lord and we submit ourselves to the Lord and we say, as, as Jesus patterned for us in the Gospels, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. The fear of the Lord, the, the respect for the Lord. Understanding that many of the ways the world works is not the way God works. So we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, you, you can have your way in my emotions. You can have your way in my sexuality. You can have your way in my use of money. Because I understand that you have revealed a particular way that these things are to be handled, and I come to you out of respect that you are the creator. I am just the created being, 
and I respect your ways. I want to pattern my life after your ways. And the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7, says the moment a human being does this, he gets really or she gets really smart really fast. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I've used this graphic many times, but it's basically describing something that happened in 1962. And it depicts that what happened in 1962 led to almost a, and continues to lead to, almost a precipitous decline in the SAT scores of our students. And, of course, what happened in 1962 is the year that our Supreme Court threw God out of education in the public schools. And we started to say, well, Lord, I'm going to have it my way, not your way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Notice that the human mind at that point becomes darkened. It doesn't work the way God intended it to work. And I'm here to tell you that this is something that we desperately need to bring back. And it's not going to come back unless we model it ourselves. In fact, this issue is so significant, this issue is so important that actually one of God's many names is the fear of Isaac, the God that Isaac, Jacob's father, feared. We've talked about this, but as you go through the Bible, there are many names for God as expressed in the book of Genesis. El Roy, the God who sees, El meaning God. This is why God saw what was happening with Jacob and his being taken advantage of by his uncle Laban. Because God is aware. Just like he's aware of the circumstances in your life. And then there's El Olam, Genesis twenty-one thirty-three. Olam meaning forever, El God, translated as the everlasting God. God, the uncaused cause, the God that's always been and will ever be. There was, there never was a time in which he was not, El Olam. And then, of course, there's Jehovah Jireh, which simply means the Lord will provide. First revealed that name in Genesis chapter 22 of the ram caught in the thicket who would be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. You don't have to sacrifice Isaac. God has provided a substitute, Jehovah Jireh. He's he's the God of provision. And I've tried to make a list as we've moved through the book of Genesis of God's different names. Uh, First name given is Genesis 1.1, Elohim, describing his power. A wonderful name for God in the Genesis creation story where God brought everything into existence in six days of creation. And then in Genesis 2 verse 4, which focuses more on God's relationship to Adam, to man, you have a new name for God. Of course, English doesn't bring these out, but the Bible wasn't originally written in English. We have very good English translations. But when you see this in Hebrew, they really jump out at you. God in Genesis 2 is called Yahweh, meaning he's relational. Which is an amazing thing when you think about it. You look at the uh, depth of our universe. 
I was talking to, even just this week, an, an astronomer, a Christian, and I said, does astronomy build your faith? He says, absolutely. Because you realize the depth and the magnitude of creation and how even the things that we are aware of through astronomy is just sort of a, a um, it's like a grain of sand in comparison to the entire beach of all of the beaches of the world. That's how big our our universe that we're living in is. And yet that God that brought these things into existence in the six days of creation wants a relationship with me. And he wants a relationship with you. It's an astounding thing when you think about it. So he's disclosed as Yahweh. And then Genesis 16, verse 13, he's aware. He's, he's the God who sees. Everything that's happening in our lives. El Olam, Genesis 21:33. he has always existed. Jehovah Jireh, he is the God of provision. Genesis 2, verse 14. And then we could just add another name to the list here in our chapter that we're looking at. Genesis 31, 42, and 53. The only time this name of God is used he is called the God Isaac feared. He is to be respected. He is to be reverenced. The names of God. What an amazing study. And I can't wait to keep adding to that list as we continue on through the book of Genesis. Paul, writing to the Colossians, said this in Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Be careful, Christian, Paul says, about your mind being seduced by worldly philosophies. And we certainly have a lot to choose from today, don't we? I've used this before, Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave by David Brees. You're looking for something to read besides your Bible. We always read our Bible first, amen. That's a great book. It's a classic. Describing the influence of these men that has continued on, these godless men in in most cases, in all cases. Their ideas continue to hold the attention of the thinking of people, even though these people have passed away a long time ago. Charles Darwin gave us the ability to explain creation without God via evolution. Karl Marx taught a system of economics and politics, which has probably enslaved and killed more people than any other economic and political system the world has ever seen. He gave us communism. Switching now to number four, John Dewey gave us the thought or the concept that we can educate people without God involved at all. Secular education. Sigmund Freud tried to explain human nature via sexual psychoanalysis falling far short of what the Bible reveals concerning the doctrine of man. John Maynard Keynes said the way to prosper is run up the debt. I'm glad that's not happening today. John Maynard Keynes, Keynesian economics, Soren 
Kierkegaard basically taught that all values are relative. There are no absolutes. To which I say, well, do you know that absolutely? So torturing small animals is okay for one person but not the other. Values clarification. Your values are determined by the situation that you're in. There are no universal values like the Ten Commandments. People march to the drumbeat of these different philosophies constantly, probably not even realizing where they come from. And one of them, number three, I've mentioned this before, and I like to bring him up relative to the discussion of the names of God, is this man, Julius, uh, in German, Wellhausen, who gave us the documentary Hypothesis. He basically said, well, you don't, you don't really believe Moses wrote Genesis, do you? In fact, Moses didn't even write the first five books of the Bible. I mean, Moses couldn't have written this because there wasn't even writing in the time of Moses, is what Wellhausen said. And he said, it's obvious that that's the case. Somebody long after Moses was relying upon these sort of documents or sources written long after the time of Moses. So the writer of Genesis, whoever he is, sometimes was relying on the J source because the biblical text says Yahweh. Sometimes he was relying upon the E source because the biblical text says Elohim. Sometimes he relied on the Deuteronomist source because... We have in our Bible the book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes he was relying upon the priestly source because we have a priestly legal code called the book of Leviticus in the Bible. And this type of thinking, which started with higher criticism in Europe, early 1900s, German rationalism is where this came from, just took over. School after school after school in Europe. And it got exported right here to the United States of America. Where many of our schools and our seminaries graduate preachers and pastors and theologians that think this way. Um, In fact, you're not even in the curriculum or curricula given an opportunity to think any other way. And... This is all the work of Wellhausen. You know, Wellhausen left a, a Christmas present under your tree. It's called Documentary Hypothesis. Charles Darwin left a Christmas present under your tree. It's called Biological Evolution, as did Karl Marx, as all of these others. And you start to see this and you understand what Paul was saying here about philosophies. See to it that no one takes you captive. Through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Notice elementary. You start believing this kind of stuff, and many people do. They think they're so erudite and educated. Paul says that's like going back to kindergarten. You might as well go back to elementary school. Because what you have in terms of the wisdom that comes from Jesus is so much more profound than what these godless, pagan, in most cases unsaved, unregenerate men could ever come up with. 
And so there had to arise in the 1920s a sort of the fundamentalist movement, which we are the beneficiaries of here at Sugarland Bible Church, where independent schools started to begin, uh, Dallas Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, others, to get away from all of this European, higher critical nonsense. One of the things that Bellhausen said is, well, there must be different sources here because there's different names for God. A different name means the compiler, who was not Moses, was relying upon a different source. When the compiler was writing Genesis 1, he was relying upon one source because there's one name for God there. When the compiler was writing Genesis 2, he was relying upon another sense, another source rather, because there's a different name for God. The problem is when the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19 was questioned about divorce and remarriage, Jesus himself quoted Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and called them both authoritative scripture. Jesus never thought there was any contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He attributed both statements to Moses. And this is how you handle this objection that different names of God must mean different literary sources. I was looking at the curriculum of one school, which was very close to where I was studying at the time, Dallas Seminary. I was looking at how their professors approached mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, and there there it was in, in all of the syllabi. The documentary hypothesis. They don't even give you the choice to believe anything else. And it's no wonder that that particular school and that particular movement had lost its way a long, long time ago. In fact, I graduated from um, an undergraduate institution that was founded by Christians But the only real evidence that there was any semblance of Christianity on that campus was the walls where the scripture verses were. There there they were on the walls, the scripture verses, John 15, all kinds of other things. Obviously, no one was paying attention to them in the classroom. They were just there on the wall. And you start to wonder, well, how did this school drift to what it is today from where it started? And being sort of the nosy person that I am, I started to look back at yearbooks written around, oh, I don't know, 1960, uh, when the students were primarily Christian, and it was a Christian school. And they they kept in these comments, and the students, of course, were giving their comments in these yearbooks, were so excited about a new professor on campus. And he was so, you know, enlightened, and he was sort of giving them a new way to think. And as I started to sort of look at what this new enlightened professor was talking about, I, I saw exactly the issue. He was promoting JEPD theory, the Wellhausen the hypothesis. And I saw that and I said, well, that, there's the explanation. 
that's how, how a school starting on a, a Christian foundation was shifted into something else. That's why we have to pay attention to these kinds of things. Why then, answering Wellhausen, are there different names for God? Well, it's not because they're different sources. It's because God manifests himself differently to different people depending upon the need. He is powerful in Genesis 1, so he goes by the name Elohim. He wants a relationship with man in Genesis 2, so he goes by the name Yahweh. It's not a different source. It's not a different God. It's just that God is so big that he's multifaceted. It's It's like your own life. When you interact with your grandkids, your grandpa or grandma, when you interact with your own children, your mom and dad, when, depending on the position you hold at work, your boss or manager or employee, you're not a different person. You have different roles depending upon the need and depending upon what God has ordained. And that's the reason why there's different names for God in the book of Genesis. It has absolutely nothing to do with different sources. Because one of the things that Wellhausen said is, look, uh, Moses in the time of the Exodus could not have written this book because there was no such thing as writing at that time. So obviously someone way after the fact wrote this. And that became sort of the evidence of the time. These philosophies have a tendency to spring up when the climate is right. That was sort of the soil through which the documentary hypothesis arose that destroyed, destroyed school after school, church after church, denomination after denomination, civil wars. Read about that modernist, fundamentalist controversy. Read about it. Schools were lost. Denominations were lost. Libraries were lost. Endowments were lost. Because of this type of liberalism. The reason that a lot of this stuff took off is because the the Code of Hammurabi, which is a... Legal code that predates Moses by about four centuries had not yet been discovered. So if there is a code on the books that's very intricate and very complex, a legal code, the Code of Hammurabi, that precedes Moses, had that been known at the time, Wellhausen's documentary hypothesis would have never seen the light of day. But it came into existence at the right time and it continues to exercise influence over the thinking of countless people. Even though today, if it had arisen, it probably could have been debunked. So Jacob, what does he do here? He he swears and he gives an oath and he gives his commitment and he uses a different name for God in the process. He continues on and he involves himself in a sacrifice. Look at the end of verse, uh, or actually verse 54. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain 
and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal. And they spent the night on the mountain. Notice the first thing that Jacob wants to do is he wants to issue some sort of animal sacrifice. This this covenant, he says, is of God. And to show my commitment to it, I'm going to issue an animal sacrifice. Now, where in the world did people ever get the idea that to be right with God, you had to issue a sacrifice? That's an idea that goes right back to the Garden of Eden. Because God says in the Garden of Eden, after the transgression by our forebears, this is how I will forgive sin. Remember in Genesis 3, they came clothed with their own loin coverings. That's the first act of religion ever in the Bible. They were trying to sort of make themselves right with God through their own efforts. God says, I won't accept that. In fact, Isaiah, uh, what is it, 64 and verse 6 talks about how if, if people do that, that's nothing more than a, than a filthy rag. Your, your works of righteousness, notice righteousness, things that you do to make yourself right with me, thinking that that's going to somehow sweep the sin problem away. God says, I look at that as filthy rags. Well, then how's it going to work, the Lord? Because we need to get right with you again. And here, God says, here's how it's going to work. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. They were trying to clothe themselves. God says, nope, unacceptable. I will clothe you. Well, with what? With garments of skin. Now, pray tell, where did these garments of skin come from? I mean, I don't think they just magically were dropped out of the air, like taking a walk through the Burlington Coat Factory or something. There's the the coat. I, I think what happened is God took an animal and killed it right there on the spot. Well, what did the animal do that was wrong? Nothing. The animal is an innocent sacrifice. And from that innocent sacrifice, God took the clothing of an animal, innocent, now killed, and transferred it or gave it to Adam and Eve. That's how you're made right with me. Not through your own works, but through a sacrificial work that I will do. That's why this sacrifice idea you start to see it being followed as you move through the book of Genesis. People figure out this is what is pleasing to the Lord. This is why the Lord rejects Cain's sacrifice and accepts Abel's sacrifice. Genesis 4, you you can read it. I mean, why, why would God look with favor on one but not the other? The answer is one man came through the blood sacrifice that God ordained. The other, to quote Frank Sinatra, the great theologian, did it my way. So God accepts one and rejects the other. One one man honored the concept of blood sacrifice, the other didn't. It's the same issue today. There There are people today that are trying to get right with God, and yet God will not accept them as his children, 
because they're trying to get to God through their own path. And how important it is that we find God through not our own path, through the path that he has established. This is why in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, I mean, what's the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark? I mean, I would have gone out and probably taken a big hike, stretched my legs, done something. But it says there in Genesis 8.20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. There's the idea again, the innocent sacrifice. And you go right on through Hebrew Bible that we sometimes call Old Testament And you see all of these animals, the book of Leviticus describes it, being slaughtered around the clock. Uh, The tabernacle, you see these sacrifices. The tabernacle eventually gives way to the Solomonic temple. You walk into the Solomonic temple and the blood is running constantly. The temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They they rebuild it in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The, The system continues right up to Jesus showing up in the New Testament in John chapter 1. And what does John the Baptist, who, by the way, is the greatest prophet, according to Jesus, of the whole age, that whole age of the law, which goes back 1,500 years. I mean, that's quite a compliment when you think about it. We've had 1,500 years of prophets. This guy, Jesus says, is the best of all of them. So I think I need to figure out what John the Baptist is saying. John 1.29, it says, The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming and said to uh, coming to him, and said to him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He is the fulfillment of all of these temporal animal sacrifices going back to the fall and God's interaction with our forebears in Eden. He's the one that that brings the whole thing to completion. Because Jesus, in John chapter 19 and verse 30, made this statement on the cross. This is the last thing Jesus said before he died. John 19 verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head gave up his spirit. The King James says he gave up the ghost. There was a split between his body and the part of him, the soul or the suke, which is designed to live forever. The two split. And just before that, by the way, is what happens when you die. The two separate. And Christ's final words were, it is finished. 
which is really not that great of a translation. The Greek translation is tetelestai. Tetelestai means paid in full. It's a fascinating term. It's It's been found all over the Greco-Roman world. It's an accounting term. When a bill was paid, there was an actual insignia that was put on it, and it said paid in full. That's what Jesus said when he died. Those were the last words coming out of his mouth as he was slipping into eternity. To Tetelestai is in the perfect tense in Greek. You say, well, who cares? Well, it matters. The perfect tense in Greek is a one-time action. It's singular. But it has ongoing reverberations. It has ongoing repercussions. When Jesus said to Telestai, he said, it's finished. Meaning, singularly, the sin debt of the world has been paid for. It's a done deal. Now the rest of the world can enjoy ongoing benefits because of this singular act. The world of religion will confuse you on this just as fast as a human being could be confused. The world of religion, I have this here on the top of the screen. This is not my original graph. I got this from Dr. Thomas Stiegel of Duluth Bible Church. I I use it frequently because it simply distinguishes the world of religion, the world of clothing yourself as Adam and Eve were clothing themselves versus the gospel where God clothed Adam and Eve. Well, people all my life, ever since I got saved, Andy's religious. Are you kidding me? I'm probably the least religious person on the planet. I don't want anything to do with religion. In fact, if I'm reading my Bible right, it's the religious people that are causing all the trouble in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus seems to be pretty copacetic to everybody. You know, tax gatherers, prostitutes. But watch what he's saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were very sad, you see, Sadducees, because these people were religious. I mean, at the end of the day, what it came down to is they were all trusting in something they did to make themselves right with God. That's why Jesus says, you don't understand that the harlots and the tax gatherers and the prostitutes are entering before you. That's why he says things like, be ye perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's a pretty tough standard. Why is it a tough standard? Because we think in religious terms. Religion will say Jesus did about 90%. Roman Catholicism says that. Jesus did about 90%. Now, you better kick in your part. Well, what do I got to do? Three things. Pay, pray, and obey. Yeah, but how do I know if I've paid enough or prayed enough or obeyed enough? Well, we're not going to really tell you. Because we want you in a state of fear. 
yeah, but what am I going to do about my assurance of salvation? Well, I'm about 98% sure I'm saved. I mean, how could you ever know you're 100% secure in the Lord? How, how do you know if you've done enough? I mean, I was raised in the top square there. And then I don't know what it was, the work of the Spirit, opening my mind, being around people that could clearly articulate the gospel. Then the Lord moved me to the bottom square. Thank God for that. God God moved me away from my own loin coverings, Genesis 3, to receiving his sacrifice for me. The bottom square is not religion. God says Jesus did 100%. This is salvation by God's grace. You better not teach this doctrine, Pastor. Because what is going to happen is people are going to go out and they're going to live like the devil Monday through Saturday. You, you let this one out of the bag and, oh my goodness, people won't be in a state of fear anymore. And they'll live the way they want. I disagree with that. I think the more a person understands the bottom square, the more living the way you want seems unreasonable. Romans 12, verse 9, Paul is very clear concerning the motivation of living for God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul, what mercies of God? Paul says, well, didn't you read my book? I described the mercies of God in chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 3, you're a sinner. Chapters 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21, there's been a sacrifice provided for you through the person of Jesus. Chapters 6 through 8, you've got the power now within you to live for God that you didn't have before. Chapters 9 through 11, well, I don't really know, Paul, if these promises are true because you've forgotten your promises to Israel. Oh, God says, I've never forgotten about Israel. I'm going to do everything I'm going to do for Israel. All of Israel's promises, when all of this is summed up, will be in total fulfillment. So therefore, verse 1, God is reliable. So what do you do with the information? Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Some translations say, which is your reasonable spiritual service of worship. This is what's reasonable. This is what's logical. I mean, it is logical to look at what God did for us through the person of Jesus Christ and to turn around and say, you know, Lord, I can't believe what I have. Why don't you take over the rest of my life? I'll just lay it down right now volitionally. And when my sin nature gets in the way, I'll confess my sin not to restore position, but to restore fellowship, and I'll lay myself down again. I want you to reign in this body 
First of all, I can't believe you want this body. Because I've looked in the mirror lately. It's not a pretty sight. I can't believe you even want it. But since you went to all of these lengths to redeem it, why would I turn around and say, well, um, I'm just going to go live like the devil? That doesn't even make any sense to do that. I mean, a person that thinks that way, maybe they don't really understand what they have. Maybe, Maybe they ought to go back and read the first 11 chapters that precede the therefore. And so this is where this concept of sacrifice comes from. This is why all of these patriarchs that we're reading about in the book of Genesis are sacrificing. And isn't it a wonderful thing to know that while we do not offer animal sacrifices today, that I can still give the Lord a sacrifice? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. You mean the Lord can take my consecrated life that I live under his power and he receives that as a sacrifice? That's what it says here. Yeah, but are you trying to pay God back? Nope, can't do that. Are you doing it because you're afraid that God is going to rip the carpet out from under you and you're going to wake up one one day or one night upon death and find yourself in hell? No, I don't do it for that reason either. Because if I'm understanding my Bible correctly, God cannot and will not rip the carpet out from under us. Well, then why in the world would you serve him? Because I can't believe what I have. Because I've read the first 11 chapters. I mean, I'm just stunned and shocked that the God who created me, of all of the things God could be doing, I mean, this is a big big universe, right? Big galaxy. He could be doing a lot of stuff. Of all of the things God could be doing, he sacrificed for me so a relationship with me is possible. And so why would I turn my back on a God like that. That's not logical. That's not reasonable. That's not spiritual. It's dumb. Sorry to be that crass about it. But it doesn't even logically follow to act like that. I believe, I think Chuck Swindoll has a book called The Grace Awakening. I love that title. Because I believe when a human being understands the doctrine of grace, the way we're seeking to articulate here, it unleashes something in the child of God, which does not lead to greater licentiousness. It leads to greater consecration unto God. And if that's true, then there's no need any longer for the preacher's and teachers to hold hell over people's heads constantly and tell them if they're not living right this week, then they lost salvation or they never had salvation because we got to pump them up and motivate them to live holy. By the way, um, if you think that you are keeping yourself in the grace of God through your own performance, then you're your own savior. I mean, you're completely trusting and relying upon yourself. 
No wonder everybody's a basket case within modern day Christianity if that's what they think. So I have 100% eternal security. I have 100% assurance of salvation. I do not think that leads to greater licentiousness. I think it leads to greater service and consecration. And this whole concept of sacrifice, offering a sacrifice, I mean, you see it being developed right here in the book of Genesis, ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ, where the top prophet of a 1,500-year age a man that Jesus said he's the highest of the high. He said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. It is finished. Trust in that. Rely upon that. And then spend the rest of your life basking in it. And Romans 1 through 11 is a great place to start because that will unleash in you once you understand it, a level of consecration and service that putting people in a perpetual state of fear can't deliver. The grace awakening. Jacob swears, Jacob sacrifices, Jacob eats. I like this one, verse 54. Genesis 31. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. He called his kinsmen... Who would his kinsmen be? That would be his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and his one daughter. Dinah has been born at this point. Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal, and they ate the meal. If you go back to verse 46 for a minute, you'll see a reference to the eating. Verse 46 says, end of the verse, and they ate there by the heap. Remember the the witness or the stones that were stacked up there to commemorate this vertical agreement between uh, Laban and Jacob. The covenant meal. It's kind of interesting that when the Lord brought the children of Israel later in biblical history to Mount Sinai and gave them what? It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It says this in Exodus 24, verse 11, Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. I mean, this subject of the covenant meal, you see it in the New Testament, because it's called the Last Supper. Leviticus 22, verses 14 through 23. It's what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. The most totally messed up church that I know of in the Bible other than Corinth. Sometimes I drive on the freeway and I see these churches, how they promote themselves. I saw one sign that said, we are a first century church. And I thought, well, I hope it's not Laodicea. Or Corinth. Laodicea. Do you know what Laodicea even means? That means the people ruling. It's a compound word. Two words making up one word. Laos. People. Decao. Ruling. It's the people are running the church without Jesus. That's why Jesus is outside the door knocking to get in. Typically presented as a 
invitation for salvation. My own mother at a Billy Graham crusade was saved through that verse as an invitation for salvation. However, that's really not what the verse is talking about. What the verse is talking about is Jesus is outside the door of his church and God's people are having church without Jesus. They're having Christianity without Christ. It's not a salvation problem. It's a fellowship problem. Because he says in verse 19, those whom I love I reprove. Divine discipline, Revelation 3. That's not something that is applied to an unbeliever. Divine discipline is for the believer. So this essentially is a church out of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what it is. It's what he talked about in the upper room about the vine and the branch being separate. When Jesus in the upper room talked about the vine and the branch, you know, as the, as the branch is in the vine, it bears fruit. If it's not in the vine, it doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit that will last. When he talked about that issue, he was talking to 11 people that were all saved. He's not teaching them how to get, get go to heaven and be saved. He's talking about how you bear fruit as a Christian, fruit that will last. You stay connected to Jesus by way of fellowship. You don't do it because you think you're going to lose your salvation because Jesus earlier in the chapter said, you are in me. The phrase in me is an expression used amongst the members of the triune Godhead. Just as there's security within the Trinity, there's eternal security in God and his people that have trusted in him for salvation. But the problem is I can do a lot of things in my natural self as a Christian that are sinful. And when that happens, it doesn't mean I'm not a Christian anymore. What it means is I'm the branch out of the vine. And if I'm the branch out of the vine, how could I ever bear fruit since the branch is totally dependent upon the nurturing sap of the vine? That's why Jesus says if you're in that condition, you can't you can do nothing. Oh, you can do some things in your flesh. The flesh through its own energy can accomplish a lot. But you cannot, John fifteen, bear the fruit that's eternal. If you want to bear the fruit that's eternal, you've got to stay connected by way of fellowship to the vine. That's where confession and of sins comes in. Acknowledging that sin is wrong. Staying in prayer. Staying in his word. Because it's very possible that you can be in a relationship with somebody and not enjoy fellowship with that person. Just look at marriage as an example. I mean, you can do all kinds of things that offend your spouse but you're still married legally. So what's broken? Moment by moment enjoyment of that person that you're married to is broken. Fellowship is broken until you own up, apologize for what you did. 
Once you do that, you're, you're not married again. But now you're in fellowship with that person. Jesus says if you want to bear fruit, you've got to stay in fellowship with him. Because it's not your fruit. I mean, there's no way I can go out and produce what he wants me to produce through my own energy. It's only through staying in fellowship. That's the problem here at Laodicea. And so what does Jesus say to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, verse 20? He starts talking about the covenant meal. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him. That's the covenant meal. And he with me sort of have lost this in modern day culture of dining, meaning intimacy with God, because we're always on the run. Fast food, in and out, this, that. The whole idea of the art form of sitting down with someone in fellowship over a meal, we've in our hectic society, we don't really even understand that anymore. But if you go back in biblical times, when these covenants were entered into, I mean, there was a meal. There was intimacy between people. And that's what you see Jacob involved in here. I mean, how long did this go on for? He spent the night on the mountain. Was he asleep? Was he awake? doesn't really say. But have we become so rushed in our spirituality that we're no longer willing to spend the night with the Lord? Jesus spent the night on a mountain with God the Father. Luke 6, verse 12, it says, It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. That's fellowship. That's intimacy. It's very convicting to me as a 21st century man because I don't have time to do this. I'm too busy serving the Lord to worry about this. And that's why we don't see the fruit that maybe God wants to produce in us. We've pursued activity first. Where God says, no, activity flows out of intimacy with me. Intimacy first. Activity or fruit will come naturally out of intimacy with him. The paragraph ends, verse 55, with Laban's um, departure. There's sort of a blessing that Laban gives here, verse 55 Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and his daughters, and blessed them. A lot of people here in verse 55 say, well, there's an obvious error in the Bible because those that he is kissing and blessing aren't his sons. Those are his grandsons. Ha, ha, ha. And they kind of act like, ooh, you got us now. You know, not understanding that that word for sons in Hebrew is is pretty broad. Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says of Jesus, 
the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. There's a thousand years between Jesus and David, and yet Jesus is still called David's son. So these uh, folks that try to take a 21st century definition and use it to kind of produce an error in the Bible and, and think they're so creative in the process... I just don't have a lot of good things to say about such people, so I'll move on here. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and his daughters, and blessed them. Was this authentic? I'm not sure if it really was, because the best I can tell is Laban half-heartedly cares about his grandchildren and his two daughters. He's really interested in money. You know... Judas kissed Jesus, Luke twenty two forty eight, and we know how that ended. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? This uh, blessing is interesting, even if Laban didn't mean it. I hope we understand as parents and grandparents how important it is to bless your children. To, to acknowledge them, to acknowledge that they are a miracle brought into the world and God's hand is on their life. I was not raised in a home where I was told, you're good for nothing, you'll never amount to anything. I know people were raised in homes like that. I, I was not. I was raised in a home where my father told me over and over again on the way to church. I don't remember any sermon from that church that we went to. But I do remember the sermons that my dad preached to me in the car. He said over and over again, Andrew... God has a great plan for your life. You start hearing that, particularly young, over and over again, and guess what? You start believing it's true. How important that is to impart to our young people, that parental or grandparental blessing. Not seeing our kids as uh, an annoyance, or an irritation, but imparting to them that blessing. I don't know if Jacob, uh, excuse me, Laban meant what he said, but he did take the time to do that. And you'll see that as you, we travel through Genesis, you'll you'll see that blessing over and over again. You'll notice that Laban didn't really bless Jacob. <laughs> I think he's still jealous of Jacob because of Jacob's prosperity. He sure embraced him back in Genesis 29:13. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran and met him and embraced him and kissed him. You notice that Jacob is sort of ignored here by his uncle, kind of as a window into Laban's heart. And then the rest of the verse says, verse 55 then Laban departed and returned to his place. 
What place is that up in Haran? This is where Laban and what's called in the Bible Padan Aram or Mesopotamia. This is where their whole family disappears from the biblical record. We don't hear from them again. So this whole issue that went on for 20 years is now resolved in Jacob's life. And Jacob, it probably at that point, kicked up his heels and said, I'm glad I'm through with that one. I'm glad there's no more trials in my life to deal with. <laughs> and God says, think again, because we move into chapters 32 and 33, where he still has a great big issue hanging over his head. He's got to reconcile with Esau. Laban fixed. Now I've got the Esau problem who came at me with a murderous rage. That's why I went to Haran for 20 years to begin with. Now I've got a bigger problem. Luke chapter 4, verse 13 says this concerning Jesus. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until a more opportune time. The Christian life is just like that. You might get something solved. You might get something fixed. You might think no more trouble on the horizon and God will not let you live there very long. I take it from personal experience. It's just a matter of time before you're thrust into the next valley where you're going to have to trust the Lord all over again. Because your faith, as we tried to explain in Sunday school this morning, is like that that muscle. If you don't keep using the muscle, the muscle is going to atrophy. So you might get something fixed in your life. You might get something solved in your life. You might think, I'm on easy street. God says, no, you're not. And the devil says, no, you're not. I'm just leaving you for a more opportune time. And God allows it. Because let's be honest, folks. <laughs> when I'm on the mountaintop, I don't grow much spiritually. I love it up there, by the way. Wish I could stay there. God doesn't let me stay there for very long. I don't know about you guys. Does he let you stay on the mountaintop long? Probably not. You're probably just like me. He puts you into the next valley. And he says, I want you to keep trusting me because I want that faith muscle to be developed further. So Jacob moves from the trouble with Laban. Now he's trying to fix a bigger problem, which is a murderous Esau. And so we'll read about that next week. If you could study uh, Genesis 32, verses 1 through 21 next time. That would be great. In preparation for the gospel which we give at the end of our services. It's an easy transition here because of that faith muscle. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him or to please God. The work of Jesus is complete. As we saw earlier today, it is finished. 
nothing for the lost sinner to do other than to receive it as a free gift by way of faith. And that's how a person gets saved. For the first time, they exercise that faith muscle as the Spirit places them under conviction and they trust what Jesus did for them on the cross. Yeah, but what else? That's it. That's the only thing God requires. But what about my growth in Christ? Well, God will take care of that on the other side. But get saved first by trusting in the work of the Messiah. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time to live a life in our place that we could never live. To die a death in our place and pay a payment that we could never pay. And he simply says, I want you to stop trusting in your own good works And I want you to trust exclusively in the good work that I've done for you 2,000 years ago. If a person within the sound of my voice will do that, then they're they're saved. They're a born-again Christian. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do to receive, join a church to receive, give money to receive. The world of religion has hijacked all of this. It's not what the Bible teaches. God says receive it as a gift and you receive something as a free gift from God by trusting in the work that he has done. We encourage as many people that come under the influence of this message to do that. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for how Genesis 31 ends and the spiritual lessons that it teaches us. I pray you'll be with us as we move into Genesis 32 and Genesis 33, where we learn about a great reconciliation that's on the horizon for Jacob. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.